very, very old friend um, who I got to know at university, so it's a long time ago, um, who would never go and see a film, nor in fact read a book, uh, until or unless he knew what the ending was. Now, that sounds particularly and peculiarly counterintuitive in that I think for most of us, the surprise and not knowing where a story is going is part of the attraction. But his reasoning was pretty watertight. He basically said, if I want to go and enjoy a film, if I want to enjoy reading a book, I don't want to find that the person that I think is the hero or the person that I particularly admire gets killed uh, on the penultimate page or that it all unravels in the final act. I want to know, is it a happy ending? And so he would, in my mind, ruin books and ruin films by either flicking to the end or trying to find out as many spoilers as possible. Though when I was at university, you couldn't just go online and find that out. Uh, it's rather easier to have them spoiled these days. I wonder whether you've got a favorite story, a favorite book or a favorite film where the ending isn't predictable, where there's an ending that is either a big twist or a big surprise, a big aha moment. There have been a few films over the years where the whole sort of um, publicity campaign has all been about don't spoil the ending, don't tell what's coming. Well, we've been working our way through not a film, not a novel, but a letter over these last few weeks as we've been looking at the letter that John, we think, almost certainly the John that was Jesus' close friend when he was walking this earth, wrote to um, a group of the very earliest Christians. We call it One John because it was the first of three letters of his that we have in the Bible. And for uh, most of the letter, there's some really strong themes that run all the way through. You sort of feel like you know where the narrative's going. You sort of know where the story's going. It's about this person, Jesus Christ, the one who has come, who isn't just a human being, but is God come to be with us. It's about what he's done for us in his life and death and resurrection. And most of all, it's about how the love that God has for each of us, from the youngest amongst us, like Maya, to the oldest amongst us, from those who've known God all our lives, to those who are sort of standing on the edges thinking, is this for me? It's about how God's love is for us in and through Jesus and how we're simply called to love God back. Great. But then out of the blue, literally in the last few words of the whole letter, it's as if John just pulls you know, a rabbit out of the hat. He pulls a trick on us. There's a sort of aha moment because he speaks in language that he's never used for the whole of the rest of the letter. He says something we aren't expecting. He says something that we put perhaps wouldn't welcome, he says something that doesn't feel like it makes a lot of sense. And actually one of the best, um, I was going to say tricks or techniques, none of those words quite work when we're reading the Bible, is when we trip up over something, when something is a surprise, when something makes us go, huh? Start digging there, because that's often where the real treasure is to be found. It's this sentence that comes literally out of nowhere. There's no preamble, there's no lead up to it, there are no themes that seem to end in it. He says in the very last words of the whole letter, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now there are two problems with that. One is the fact that it just feels like it comes out of nowhere. This book about love, God's love for us, our love for him, keep yourselves from idols. It feels a bit harsh, a bit blunt, a bit sudden. The other problem is that of course for you and me, we don't live in a culture or a society or a time in history where particularly we're aware of idol worship. We don't walk down Twickenham High Street or South Street in Isleworth or wherever it is that we're based and see little shrines and idols set up. We aren't needing convincing, perhaps, not to go and sort of make a sacrifice of a lamb or a goat or a heifer to an idol, at least I'm sort of assuming 
that's not a feature of the, the community that we're in. So we look at this and we think, well, oh, John, you sort of lost the plot now. You had me on love. That's great. It's nice to know God loves me. I'm even up for being asked and called to love him back. But really, keep yourselves from idols. Well, obviously. I think if John were here today, he would be saying to us the same thing, though. Despite knowing our culture, despite knowing our background, despite knowing the lack of an idol or a temple or a little shrine on every street corner, he would still say to us, children, my friends, keep yourselves from idols. You see, John wasn't particularly concerned with the clothes, if you like, that this particular attitude to life might take. He wasn't particularly worried in itself with the culture, but with the choice. And the choice that he holds out to us through this whole letter is actually the choice that the whole Bible holds out to us. It's actually the choice that baptism or christening holds out to a baby, a child, as they grow up, to their parents, to the whole Christian community. And the choice is simply this. What is going to be your true north? What is going to be your home? What is going to be your aim? What is going to be your motivation? What is going to be your number one? What is going to shape, define, motivate your life? Because that, in the end, is either going to be an idol, says John, or it will be the one true God whom we meet in the person of Jesus Christ. It's that stark. And actually, in that sense, this verse doesn't come out of nowhere. Because the whole of the rest of the letter is all about Jesus. He wants to say to you, he wants to say to me, I'm offering you a choice. This person of Jesus, whom I believe, says John, is God himself come to be with us. God himself come to love us in his life and death and resurrection. Come to simply invite us to love him back, to love the people that he's made, to care for this beautiful world he's given us a gift. Or to put your worship, your worthship, the number oneness on something else. You can choose. It's up to you. Maya can choose as she grows up to follow this person, Jesus, to make him number one, or she can choose, just as you can choose, just as I can choose, to make money number one, ambition, status number one, what other people think of us, what our family thinks of us, where we are in our society, what our neighbors make of us, what our kids think of us, actually what other people think of our kids. There are all sorts of ways that we can say, that's my number one, that's my goal, that's what makes me happy, that's what makes me worth something, that's what defines who I am. The interesting thing about these idols is that they are almost, not always, but they are almost always in themselves good things. Money is not a bad thing, neither is ambition, neither are kids or family or status or friendship. They're all good things. The question is, are they number one? Are they our true north? Are they our home? Are they what define who we are? Are they where we get our status and our sense of self from? That's what John means. That's why he lands this whole letter, which has all been about the love of God, just thrown towards us in the person of Jesus. And this simple invitation to love him back. That's why he lands this whole letter with seemingly an out-of-the-blue challenge. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Because it's so easy to get sucked in, isn't it? I mean, even if you've been uh, an acknowledged follower of Jesus all your life, 
There are so many points in our lives where there are so many things jostling for number one. I don't know whether you remember your first paycheck, if you've had one. It's funny still calling them paychecks, isn't it? Your first bit of money that came into your bank account, whatever. Or whether you remember a, a, a first kiss. Or if you're a parent, whether you remember the birth of a first child. Those firsts, that first moment where something really big happened. First promotion, the first management position, the first acknowledgement by somebody. It's that little bit of us that just sort of fizzes and bubbles and comes to the surface that make us think, oh, now, now I've arrived. Now I am someone. Sucks us in, draws us in, beckons us. This is now your true north. And actually the problem with that is that then we need more. It's never quite enough, is it? There's always a bit more money to be earned. There's always another promotion to be gone after. There's always a bit more status to be inked in. There's always a bit more reputation to be got. There's always somebody who doesn't quite think well enough of us. It's never enough. And what John wants to say to us is, within all of these good things, at any moment in our lives, for Maya, for you, for me, we're having to make choices. Will this be my number one? Will this be my idol? Because if it is, it's never going to be enough. Or will I make my number one, the one who has made me, his number one? That actually makes more sense, doesn't it? Why would I give myself to money? It's never done anything for me. Why would I give myself to status? I can't control it. I'm not on top of it. Actually, I want to give myself to the one who's given everything for me. And so what we find in these few sentences before the end of the letter, before he lands with this challenge, with this request, what we find in John's writing is a sandwich. There's a sandwich of ideas, and please don't let this put you off, but it's a sin sandwich. It's not a sandwich particularly you'd want to go after eating, but basically it's a sin sandwich. The bread is some words of confidence, of reassurance, where he wants to say to you and to me, you can be sure that this person of Jesus Christ is to be your number one, that you are part of his family, that you do belong to him. And then the, the filling in the middle of this little sandwich answers the two, well, what about questions. Let me just quickly walk you through it. It'd be worth having it in front of you. Verses 13, 14, and 15. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the, these little verse numbers we put in, John didn't sort of sit there laboriously writing in little numbers as he wrote his letter. He just wrote a letter. It simply makes it a lot easier for us to all be talking about the same thing. So what we call verses 13 to 15, that's the top bit of bread. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's Jesus, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God. Verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, then we know that we have what he asked of him, we asked of him. And then verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus the bread of this sandwich is all about confidence. And the confidence isn't in what you've done or in what I've done, but in what he's done. 
If you've ever had the privilege of watching children grow up, whether as parent or an auntie or an uncle or a godparent or a neighbor, you'll have walked through some of the sort of both joy and trauma of them finding out what makes them tick, but also finding out how the world views them. That sense of increasing sense of self and self-consciousness as a child gets older. Who am I? How am I? Am I viewed well? Am I viewed badly? Am I succeeding? Am I failing? Am I particularly talented? Do other people think I'm at the bottom of the pack? All of this stuff that goes in to childhood. Am I okay? And for all of us at some point in life, the answer to that question will feel like a big resounding no. We might hide it. We might hide from it. But none of us have managed to get through the whole of life without feeling that there's a big resounding no to am I okay? Can I have confidence in who I am? Can I have confidence that I'm always going to succeed? Can I have confidence that other people are always going to think well of me? And what John wants to say to us in this bread of the sandwich, either side of this meat in the middle, is he wants to say that confidence isn't meant to be in you. You don't have to always be confident in being a success, in being well thought of, in doing the life that you hoped you were going to live in other people thinking well of you. Actually, your confidence can be in Jesus, the one who lived that perfect life that you couldn't live for yourself, that one who died death so you don't have to face it alone, the one who rose from the dead so that he could grasp for you life that starts now and will take you through even death to the life of the world to come. That's why he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. We think of that little phrase, believe in the name, as if it's up here. You know, do you believe that two plus two equals four? Do you believe that London is the capital of the United Kingdom? Well, yes, I believe stuff, but this word means far more than this. It's a relationship word. It means I trust in, I make him my true north. He's my number one. And if I do that, my confidence is in him. I've often said, haven't I, that one of the reasons I love getting to christen or baptize a baby is that actually we all know that they haven't succeeded at anything yet. And Maya is absolutely beautiful. She's a lovely girl. But it's not like she has a big list of achievements yet in life. Uh, she gurgles and smiles. I was very pleased with that. That was, that was lovely. Presumably there are times when she cries and she needs fed and she feels unhappy and she sleeps sometimes and doesn't sleep sometimes, but it's not like she comes to God with a big list of achievements. Look at me, God, I pray, I give money away to the poor, I'm kind, I'm gentle-hearted. She just is. And she's loved. She's loved by her mum and dad. She's loved by her family and friends. And actually, John would want to say to her and to us, she's loved by Jesus. So her confidence, our confidence is in the one who loves us before we ever get to love him back. The one who's done everything for us before we've ever done anything for him. I write these things, says John, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. And it, this confidence isn't in a thing or a religion or a way of life or a philosophy. John wants to tell us in verse 14 that our confidence is in a relationship. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. And this beautiful relationship with God isn't the relationship of a slave to some tyrant or a courtier to a king. The relationship is much more like a child to their parent. It's this beautiful language he uses in verse 14 where he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us 
and will do what we've asked of him. I don't know whether you've ever seen a teacher um, working alongside a child or a parent or a grandparent alongside a child doing a job together. And you'll know, as I've often said, that of course it's much quicker for the adult to do it by themselves. It's much less messy, perhaps more successful, less glue and glitter goes everywhere. You end up with something beautiful and perfect and pristine. But it's not really the point. The point is the relationship and the point is the child learning to do things themselves. This is the language John's using here. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, in other words, God invites us into his will, his purposes, what he's about, says, be part of it with me. That's the excitement of the journey that Maya has set out on today. It's the journey you're on if you're a baptized, christened Christian. God says, you can be confident in me. I invite you into a friendship with me. Come on, live life with me. Be part of what I'm doing. It's there again at the end, the bottom part of this sandwich, if you like, where he talks about we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And listen to these astonishing words. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. We're so close. It's like we've been drawn into him. We belong. But. But. There are two problems with all of that. Two things that if we're wise, if we're sensible, we ought to be asking. How is it possible? How does it even begin to be possible that this relationship with God through Jesus is open to you and open to me, open to Maya, when we are so messy on our inside and when our world is so messy, if you like, on our outside? The problem of sin the problem of evil. Those are the two big problems, actually, that every religion, every philosophy, every worldview has to deal with. Those are the two big problems of life, aren't they? The problem of sin, in other words, why aren't I the person that I'm meant to be? You'd have to be religious to believe that. Every person that's ever existed, who's ever looked at themselves in the mirror and looked deeply into their heart, know that we're not the people that we're meant to be. The Bible simply calls that sin. Little word with I in the middle. It's all about putting me first. None of us live up to our own standards, let alone God's. How on earth can God make me his friend when I am such a mess on the inside, even if you can't see it? But also, how can I have a relationship with God in a world that feels such a mess? Linda's helpfully led us in prayer today. But we all know that even if we were in prayer for the next 24 hours, she nor we could list all of the evil in our world, could we? We'd have to go through every nation and every community and every leader and every situation and every injustice, and we would never get to the end. So what does John say about the problem of sin and the problem of evil? Well, for the problem of sin, he simply says that sin doesn't have to lead to death. Now, again, that's a bit surprising. We think, well, that seems a bit harsh. Why would sin lead to death? And the problem with sin in the Bible is that it's not a list of things we shouldn't do, and, and here's God being rather harsh and beating us for it. Sin, by its definition, is anything that leads us away from life. Anything that leads us away from life leads us towards death. But what John is saying here is that although we all sin, although we're all messy, although none of us live up to the people that we meant to be, Sin doesn't have to lead in the end to death because Jesus takes that sin. 
he deals with it in his death on the cross. He carries us through death to the life of the world to come. There is forgiveness for sin. That's why we use the image of water in baptism, that washing clean. It's not that we become perfect, if only, but that we are washed clean of that mess on the inside. But we are also, says John, kept safe from the mess on the outside. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. What he means by that is not that we're perfect, but that we don't just carry on in the same way we were before. We don't just sort of sit in it and in that sort of filth of it. We, God starts to move us on from it. But then he says, the one who is born of God keeps them safe. Jesus keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. Generations of Christians down through 2,000 years, in the midst of the worst evil that the world could throw at them, have found a safety in God that goes far beyond their physical circumstances because Jesus is the one who has lived and died and risen again to set them free. Dear children, says John, keep yourselves from idols. It seems an astonishingly surprising way to finish a letter that's been about love. But John has a choice that he lays before us. It's the choice that baptism lays before a child who's baptized. It's a choice that each day of our lives lays before us. Will we put number one our ambition, what's in the bank balance, what our kids think of us, what other people think of our kids, where we are in our jobs, the status we have in society, the impact we have, the legacy we leave behind? Or will we put number one the person who has put us number one? Will we give everything for the one who's given everything for us, the person of Jesus Christ, God come to be with us, to be for us, to love us, and simply to ask us to love him back? and to love the people that he's made and to care for this beautiful world he's given us his gift. That's the journey that Maya sets off on today. That's the journey that you're on if you're responding to God's love, included in friendship with him, included in his family, forgiven of your sin, protected from evil, bringing the love of God to a world that is a mess and that needs him.